0: Our Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. I want to move this morning directly from our scripture readings into the sermon, into the text with no introduction, so that means I need to do the introduction right now. I need to explain this sermon a bit. It's going to be a bit different than usual. As is always the case in the stories in Scripture, uh, seems to be especially the case in this one, that the message of the text simply is the drama of the story. Now, I am actually opposed to an approach to preaching that always simply goes verse by verse through the text. I think that often fails to actually preach the text. I don't want to give a message on preaching right now, so I won't explain that. We usually do something different. We summarize what the message of the text is, and then we develop that message in terms of the text. This morning, I'm going to be moving through it simply verse by verse. There are some downsides to that that means all of the payoff will be at the end it means there won't be a clear three-point structure those of you who like to take notes will be frustrated i'm simply going to be moving verse by verse through the story if you need three points it goes like this beginning middle <laughs> and end why do that this morning in particular it's a little bit risky i'm actually if this in fact if this makes you nervous let me assure you i'm even more nervous Why go this way? Well, there's something in the details, the movement of this story, that simply is the point to what is happening, I am convinced, in a way that is more than usual. And I want us to be challenged to draw that out, to appreciate that together. All right, our scripture reading Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, And Abraham lived in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we humbly confess, acknowledge before you that everything we do as your gathered people in worship is something for which we depend upon you. We do not control or manipulate these things with our words, our feelings, our actions. For any of this to be good and fruitful among us, it must, because of, it must be because of your blessing. And so as we gather around your word now, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit, that we might understand and receive your word by faith. You know perfectly our weaknesses. We ask you to overcome those weaknesses by your spirit, that we might see our Lord Jesus Christ and receive the promises you've given us in him by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our text from Genesis 22 begins with words that remind us that we need the context. Verse 1 begins, after these things. Well, which things? One of them you'll remember from last week. We just read the account of God finally fulfilling His promise to Abraham and Sarah to give them the birth of their son Isaac. All of those years waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, God has finally done what he said he would do. Then, in verses we did not read, because of conflict in Abraham's house, Hagar and Ishmael have been sent out. They've been driven away. And we read a beautiful account in that text of God continuing to care for Hagar and Ishmael, something we noted in a previous story in Genesis, something that continues to happen And the thing we must remember in that is that we were told earlier that Abraham loved Ishmael. Ishmael has been driven away. After that drama, that horror of what has happened, that division in Abraham's house, despite all the beauty and joy of Isaac being provided, Ishmael's been sent away. And then we read the words, after these things, that is, after all of that, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now we've just read the story, so we know what God is about to tell Abraham to do, to take his son and sacrifice him. But before that, we must note some things in how the beginning of the story is accounted to us. We're told that God tested Abraham. So the narrator, wants us to have a bit of a sense of the big picture of what is happening. We get to know more than Abraham knows. We get to know from the beginning of the story that this is a test. And a test in the language of Scripture, in fact, beautifully in God's providence, I did not plan this, we just sang Psalm 11 in which we're told God tests the righteous. But what does that mean to test It means that the righteous is going to go through something difficult that will be for his good and will ultimately prove something about him spiritually. The language of scripture is testing being like gold going through the fire. It's not just a bad thing you get through. It's not just a bad thing that proves something about the gold. It really is gold, but it actually purifies the gold. It makes the gold more what it is intended to be. All of that is in view here. And so we, we are meant to have that perspective. God is doing something that's ultimately for Abraham's good, but Abraham doesn't get to know that. Another thing in verse 1. The word is God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. This is the word that speaks of God emphasizing his identity as the creator, as the one who is being, the one who called the universe into existence. It's not the word translated the Lord, you know, like in in the ESV in all capital letters to indicate that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the name of relationship. That is not how God is spoken of here. He is spoken of simply as God, the creator, the all-powerful one, the one who called the universe into existence, a word that if you had to overemphasize the difference between the words, This is the way of speaking of God that emphasizes his distance, his transcendence, that which makes him fearful. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This verse is absolutely horrifying. When it says, he said, take, there's a hint in the Hebrew of something like, please take. There's a construction here in the language behind the English that is different than how God usually speaks. There is a gentleness to it. There is an acknowledging that what he's about to ask Abraham to do is horrible and difficult. And then the specific language that God uses to speak of Isaac suggests the very same thing. Take your son, your only son Isaac. So the language of relationship, only the sense that all of Abraham's hopes are on the son, all of God's promises are focused on him. And then he says, whom you love and go. God knows what this means for Abraham, and the language God uses emphasizes and draws out what this means. Your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, brothers and sisters, we know the rest of the story. We've read it. The language of testing in verse 1 means we're supposed to know the rest of the story. We're not supposed to pretend we don't know. But we do have to remember, Abraham doesn't know. And at this moment, when Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, the thing we need to remember is that for Abraham, it was possible that God really wanted him to do this. Human sacrifice sounds crazy to us. In the history of the world, it is not crazy. There are countless cultures countless places, countless times in history where people have looked at the world, they've looked at the reality of creation, they've looked at the reality of the horrible things we do, the brokenness and messed upness of the world, they've looked at all of those things and concluded whatever has caused us to exist must demand human sacrifice. This has been a conclusion that Religions and faiths and philosophies and cultures have come to you time and again. Cultures we know that existed at the time of this story. That was not weird. So what is the great drama? What is the horror? What is the fear at this point in the story? It is this question. Is this who God is? Is this what the Creator demands? Is this what the one who called the universe into existence, who has begun to reveal himself to Abraham, is this what the creator demands? Sacrifice your son. Because we know the rest of the story, which we're supposed to do, we can miss the drama, the intensity of that question. And I think we fail to take the question seriously to realize this remains a live question. Who is the creator? Verse 3, Abraham obeys. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Uh, By the way, it's important to have the right picture of Isaac here. Isaac is almost certainly a teenager at this point. The word used for his young men, something like lads, is also the word used for the boy, Isaac. Now, the translation boy is good. It's meant to evoke affection. The language of affection is key to what is being said. But the point is the same word is being said for both. So these young servants are the same age as Isaac. Isaac is almost certainly a teenager. There is a strangeness to the order of things that Abraham does. Listen to the order again. He rises early in the morning, he saddles his donkey, so gets all ready for the trip, takes his two two young men and his son Isaac, and then he cuts the wood. The scholar Gordon Wenham, whom I'm leaning on more than usual for this particular account, points out that this is meant to make us wonder about Abraham's state of mind. Normally, you would have prepared the wood, gotten everything ready, and then you go and saddle your donkey and then you leave on the journey. Why does he wait to cut the wood? Well, maybe he's just not in a good state of mind. It's possible the Creator is asking him to sacrifice his son. It's possible he's trying to hide what he's about to do from the household. That he's waiting to the last minute. He gets the whole journey ready. Perhaps he's even started to leave because he knows he doesn't want Sarah to know. He doesn't want others to know. Why? Well, we can speculate. Why might he not want them to know what he's about to go do? There is a hint that he is delaying the evidence of the action. He cuts the wood for the burnt offering arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This language of lifted up his eyes and saw is, is a, in, in, in the structure of how the stories are written in scripture meant to evoke a moment of drama, a moment of behold it is there, you have arrived at the place, the place of, well, the place of what? That is the great question. Seemingly, to this point, the place of horror. He sees the place from afar. Verse 5. Then, and actually I want to pause at the word then. How long has it been now between God telling Abraham to do this and the point we are at? We were just told three days. John Calvin points out, God could have told Abraham, Hey, bring Isaac on a journey and go to the place I'm going to show you. Okay, we're going to go on the journey. God could have told Abraham it all as a pleasant-sounding thing, and then at the last minute, surprise him with sacrifice your son. God doesn't do that. God tells him at the beginning what he's going to have to do at the end of the journey, and then sets him out on a three-day journey, on which, as Calvin points out, Abraham has to think about all of this. He has to go through days knowing, anticipating what God has asked him to do. Do you see it? Do you sense all these details of the drama are drawing out the agony, the misery, the horror of what Abraham is experiencing? We, of course, can imagine all the questions. They are obvious ones. Abraham, will he go through with this? Will he do what God has told him to do? All of the philosophizing over who is this God who demands this of me, all we can imagine all of that. And the order in which God does things draw out all of those draws out all of those questions. Abraham said to his young men, verse five, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now again we have the word the boy. English translation is wonderful, evoking affection. This is like likely a teenager. He tells the two young men to stay there and not to go with him, even though he has to now climb a mountain with the burden of all of the tools, the wood, etc., that they have to bring. It seems like the whole point to bringing the young men was to help with this most difficult part of the journey. He tells them to stay behind. Why? Well, here again, Gordon Wenham suggests a whole bunch of ways to speculate. The point not being undue speculation, the point being the story is told in precisely a way to invite our entering into what is Abraham's state of mind at the moment. And the thing that Wenham suggests that I find most striking is that Abraham is probably worried they're going to try to stop him. And then I wondered, the same word is used, young men, for these servants and for Isaac. Are they Isaac's friends? Has Abraham actually brought them along so that they would have this last time together on the journey? Surely the servants growing up in the household are growing up running around and learning archery and riding and all of these things together. Is Abraham afraid these young men are going to stop him? He knows what he has to do. He knows they won't want him to do it he asks them to stay behind. We don't know. But if we're really in the story, all of these things, these possibilities should come to mind for us. And then he says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Suddenly there's a difference. Not a difference. There's a new element. A new something suggests about what Abraham is thinking. Notice he says, I am the boy, will go over there and worship. And in the structure of the sentence, I am the boy, will come back to you. Now, maybe he's just lying. Maybe he's simply trying to, again, keep the young men from following him. Or, or is there the hint, the suggestion that Abraham has a thread of hope? running through his actions. A thread of hope running through what he is doing. The book of Hebrews later tells us that Abraham knew that God could even bring Isaac back from the dead. When Hebrews says that, it's not random. It's not imposing that on the Old Testament. Hebrews there is reading this story wisely. That there is a suggestion in this language that Abraham has hope that there's somehow God is going to get them through this horrible thing. That somehow God's promise of life and who the Creator is is so deeply good that somehow something good is going to come of this. We don't know. It doesn't say for sure, but it's hinted at in the language I and the boy will come back to you. What is the great drama of the story? Who is the Creator? What is His character? What does he demand? What does he require? What does he do for his people? If you're taking notes thus far, point one. Now they begin the journey up the mountain. So we just had a three day nightmare, wondering. Now the journey up the mountain. Verse six And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Well, that's brutal not really. Abraham's an old man at this point. In fact, strangely, all of this suggests Isaac is doing all of this willingly. Isaac's not being dragged along. Isaac is helping with this. Does he know? Does Isaac know what's about to happen? Well, we don't know, but he seems to wonder. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And we know Isaac is wondering because verse 7 tells us, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, The words included in this conversation are so much more than necessary. It could just say, Abraham said, or excuse me, Isaac said to Abraham. It doesn't. What does it say? He said to his father, Abraham. He says, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. The relationship is amplified. It is emphasized. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, why does Isaac ask this? Well, he seems to be wise to what is going on. Remember, human sacrifice is not unheard of. The idea that the creator of the universe, given how horrible we are and all the horrible things we do, the idea the creator of the universe would demand this was not unthinkable. Perhaps Isaac is already contemplating the theology of it all. Is this who God is? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now we're going to talk about this phrase in a moment. But remember the thread, the tension of the horrible thing Abraham's being asked to do, Abraham's willingness to obey, but also the threat of hope. He says to the two young men, Isaac and I will return to you. Here he expresses, behold the fire and the wood, excuse me, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. All sorts of discussions. What is Abraham saying here? Is he lying to Isaac because he needs Isaac to go along with this to carry the wood? This is, in some way, an expression of faith. Gordon Wenham beautifully says, of faith, a prophecy, a prayer. And his commentary uses that sequence multiple times. An expression of faith, a prophecy, a prayer. Because Abraham is in all of those roles. He speaks more than he knows, perhaps. He speaks other than what he fears, perhaps. All, all, we can imagine all of the conflicting ideas being in the same person, right? It's all there for Abraham. Then the actions. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. All of this requires Isaac's willingness Abraham could have just snuck up behind Isaac and slit his throat. Abraham's an old man. If Isaac is going to resist at all, that's what Abraham had to do. He doesn't. Isaac is willingly bound. There's a picture of Isaac here of willingly giving himself to whatever this is the Creator is demanding. Whatever horrible thing is happening. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Let's stop here. There have been expressions of hope alongside horror. What is the horror? The three-day journey. What is being asked? The question of who God is. The climb up the mountain. The arriving to this point. We can imagine Abraham's heartbreak, seeing the willingness of his son Isaac, a willingness that is brought out in the details of the text. But then there is hope right alongside all of it. Abraham expressing confidence in who this God is. He says to the young man, we will ret-, his young men, we will return to you. In fact, Abraham may very well at that moment be expressing hope in what he thinks may be a promise God had given in the place he is being sent to being called the land of Moriah, which means provide Or reveal, see, the two words, the two ideas combined in the Hebrew word, provide, and to reveal and see. That God will be revealed, God will be seen, God will provide It's right there embedded in the name of the place. Perhaps that is being heard by Abraham as a promise, a prophecy. And then he says to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. With that confidence in who God is, he allows himself to go all the way to the point of raising the knife. There is something here in the way the covenant goes. There is something here in the way of the experience of God's people and the way of God's providence. That God so often asks us to do things that we cannot make sense of asks us to go through things that we cannot interpret, that we cannot see the end of, and we are called to go through them with enabling us to do it all along, a confidence in who the Creator is and what His promises are and who He reveals Himself to be. John Calvin says these words, and I want to read this quote for you. The language is difficult. I'll read it slowly. It's older English, but I want to actually read this. We make much as we should. That all these accounts, they point to Christ first of all, and then in Christ they describe the shape of the life of the covenant. That is deeply important. This all points to Christ. We're going to see that. It also describes the shape of the life of the covenant. Calvin says this. This example, meaning the example of Abraham, is is proposed for our imitation. Whenever the Lord gives a command... Many things are perpetually occurring to weaken our purpose. Means fail. We are destitute of counsel, advice. All avenues seem closed. In such straits, in such a situation, the only remedy against despondency is to leave the event to God in order that He may open a way for us when there is none. For as we act unjustly toward God when we hope for nothing from Him but what our senses can perceive, so we pay Him the highest honor when, in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to His providence. This is what Abraham is doing in a moment of perplexity, acquiescing, giving himself over to God's providence. With the question from the beginning being, who is this creator? Who is the one? What is his character who has called the universe into existence? And Abraham, trusting in whatever glimmers he's been given, has gone all the way to raising the knife. That's point two. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. The voice stops him. We're going to read more. You know that. You've read it already. The voice stops him. Who is it who just spoke? It's the angel of the Lord. You've got to look at the text. It's LORD in all caps. This is the covenant God. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah, the God of relationship. It's the same God has been speaking all along. Here is perhaps the drama in the whole story. That Israel, your covenant God, is the creator of the universe. They are one and the same. Or say it the other way around. The creator of the universe is the covenant God. The God of relationship. The angel of the Lord speaks. He said, now remember up to this point, the moments where we've noticed things being said more than it needs to be, said in a way that draws something out. The repetition of relationship terms, for example, for Abraham and Isaac. Same thing here. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. The words overflow with emphasizing, don't even touch him. This is, don't do anything. Nothing's going to happen. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham has survived the test. The test of faith ultimately in the goodness of God. That is what was expressed in Abraham's words. And the Lord, the covenant God, who is at the very same time the creator of heaven and earth and everything in them, says to Abraham, stop. Not, however, because sacrifice isn't necessary. It turns out that that instinct human beings have, that the things we do, the messed upness of the world because of us, leads to something like death, is not wrong. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And now, so beautifully, we have been told so many things in the way the story is written that invites us to wonder about and speculate about and get into Abraham's inner life, what he's experiencing, so many details where their only purpose is to invite us to be resonating with what Abraham is experiencing. And now we get nothing about what Abraham is experiencing. Now, what do we get? But we get Abraham speaking of God. Abraham announcing who God is—that the point to the text, ultimately through all of that drama of his experience—is a turning toward a revealing of and announcing a proclaiming of the very character and heart of the Creator of the universe. Verse fourteen. So Abraham called the name of that place, "The Lord will provide," as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. All of the questions, all of the drama, all of the intensity culminate in this moment. Who is the creator? That here the very character of God is on display. That God is the one who provides. That whatever this is, whatever is true, it's only being revealed in glimmers at this point, but whatever is true about what our sin demands, whatever is true about what our destructiveness leads to, what our self-destruction would lead to, whatever is true about the horrible things we do to each other and all that it culminates in, the answer, the character of God in response to that is that He will provide, that it shall be provided, that the answer will be given by him, and that the thing he does not require is the death of the firstborn son of his people, the character of God. Indeed, there is such beauty in that word, Moriah. That word, it shall be provided, it shall be revealed, be seen, That that going up on a mountain in Scripture is always where you go to be near God. That was part of the terror of what God was calling Abraham to do. And yet on that mountain, where God is seen, where God is revealed, where there's most the danger, most the expectation that that is when Isaac gets struck dead because God is being revealed, that when God is revealed, God provides. That somehow there's a combination of the providing and the revealing Being the same thing, the same moment, being expected. That when God is present, it is to provide. And you see, beautifully in that, we have then, not just the character of God, but in a much more particular way, the shape of the Son. The shape of Christ to come. That the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that the God who provides, He provides by being revealed, by being made known. And when He is made known, when He is revealed, He provides. So that, bound up in that word, in the prophecy, the prayer, the hope, the faith that Abraham expresses, the Lord will provide is the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. That what Abraham thought God was asking him to do God did simply to make a point that could not be made in any other way that he would, in fact, do that thing. That the thing that Abraham thought he had to do, God would, in fact, do for him. And that he would do so by providing a sacrifice in his place. But that that sacrifice would not be a ram. It would not be a lamb. It would be God himself in the person of the Son, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, so that the character of God made known is the shape of the Son, is the death of Christ for His people, and that all of that is bound up in those words the Lord will provide. There's debates. What is the type of Christ in this text? And as I was working on this point of the sermon, I had this anxiety lurking in the back of my mind. I think there was someone we read in seminary who made a big deal out of Isaac's not the type of Christ, the ram is the type of Christ. And I think it's someone I don't want to disagree with. So I go back and I actually found the book, read it, don't agree with him. It's both. Why do we have to pick? Isaac's willingness. All of the, think, think of all the misery we just went through of what it would be for the father to sacrifice his son. The point to all of that is that God says, see this, see what could be, see what in the abstract you might think might be demanded of human beings, this is what I am doing for you, what I will do for you, what I have done for you. That all of that is brought out between Abraham and Isaac to announce what God has done. So that the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 8, in words directly echoing and evoking this passage, He who did not spare his own son. That word spare echoing this text from Genesis 22. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isaac shows us the shape of the son. So does the ram. Isaac also represents Israel, the covenant people. And it is the sacrifice of the ram in his place that spares his life. This too, pointing forward to to the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ and what He would do for us. That which might have been demanded of us is instead provided, done, accomplished by the Creator for us. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We also see in this the shape of the Lord's mission. That now the Lord again, still the angel of the Lord speaking, verse fifteen calls to Abraham a second time from heaven. And now, what is the point? He says, "By myself I have sworn," declares the Lord, "because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on its she- uh, uh, sand, the sand that is on the seashore." The Lord repeats the promises he's given to Abraham but amplifies them. Now it's not just the stars, it's the sand of the seashore. Now it's not just uh, your offsprings possessing the land, but your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Referring to conquering victory as they go into the land of Canaan. And then verse 18, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That this thing that God would do as the one who provides would be for the sake of all the nations of the world. And that the shape of that is of the Creator giving of Himself, providing what is needed of Himself, that that blessing to all nations might happen, which is why we are here. And then finally, brothers and sisters, it is the shape of God's providence. Don't forget that quote from Calvin, that in that moment for Abraham, climbing up the mountain caught between the terrible thing he is going through and the confidence he rightly has in the goodness of the character of God was a moment at which he could not see how it was going to go. Was a moment at which he was going through something that he could not understand. And this announcement that the Lord will provide speaks to us in those circumstances as well. You see, the Apostle Paul is clear about this in Romans 8 that God's giving of His Son is not just an announcement of a particular doctrinal point about how sins are forgiven so that we can be in God's presence in the new creation one day. It absolutely is that. We've been emphasizing that. It is a revealing of who God is, God's character, so that the Apostle Paul says, if God did that for us, then how much more can we not be confident in every circumstance of life that God is for us? That even in the midst of all the kinds of suffering that Paul lists in Romans 8, all of the things God's people go through, we can be confident in God being for us because of, as the central event of history, God giving of himself at the cross of Christ. So that this story of Abraham also speaks to us in those seasons of life. Where it feels as though, it looks as though, it seems as though. He takes and he takes and he takes. And this story announces to us, no, he gives, he provides, he provides the answer, often along a path that is difficult, but it is a path that he has walked ahead of you in our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has taken upon himself, and so we can see when we can't see it. We can feel, we can know when we can't feel and know it that God is for us because He is not just the all-powerful creator of the universe, but also the covenant God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given of Himself, thereby revealing Himself to be for us as our God. There is no dark power behind what you see in our Lord Jesus Christ, but that Jesus makes known the Father, that the angel of the Lord speaking from heaven makes known the Creator God, and He gives to us, continues to give to us the promise, it shall be provided. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to strengthen our faith in who you are as our covenant God. We praise you for fulfilling your promise to Abraham to bless all nations through him that we might receive this good news of who you are as the one who is for us in Christ. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, that we might love and serve you and know the joy of this life of faith. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.